Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3 Dinhenicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 7 Fleth Frickwin Part 4 A Head to Head Discussion. Having finished the tale, finally. That's <laughs> a great tale. But it does open up certain themes. But oh, yeah. before we get into those themes, we've left out a bit, haven't we? Well, we have, and for a very good reason. You're dead right. Yeah. Um, before the heroes venture down to uh, Kuroi's land, down in well, Kerry. They go off to Kerry, yeah. Yeah. Um, they're sent to a character who is called Bwitha and son of Bawn. Now that even modern Irish speakers ought to mm -hmm. spot that that is yellow son of white. Um, now Henderson translates Bawn as fair, but that would be thin, so just white, you know, milk yeah, coloured. Yeah. Um, and that in itself seems a very sort of prosaic name. But they're sent up with it anyway. Um, and again, he asks them why they've come. They say they're contesting the champion's portion. And lo and behold, he sends them somewhere else mm -hmm. to a character called Uath Mac Im Oven. So horror. horror, the son of great terror. terror. Yes. So we've now got this yellow son of white. Yes. Which again, if you think of the modern yellow as being cowardly, scared, cowardly yeah. and white as being often used as this... Uh, sort of image of death or exactly. lifelessness yeah and now you get the real meanings yeah or at least the let's be a bit clearer about exactly this. yeah it's horror son of terror exactly exactly yeah but it's still really kuroi isn't it well yes and no i mean what uath makim oven does is he asks them to play the beheading game exactly as we have it well almost exactly. almost exactly it's almost more kind of straightforward um we found it interesting in uh the if you like the main uh, ending Final of, version, yeah. of the tale that uh, when this great ugly giant first appears in the court that what he asks is that he be he could behead one of the Ulster heroes tonight and then they'd come and behead him tomorrow and uh, which is a kind of no-brainer exactly go, uh. yeah <laughs> and so Winraver in a kind of clever way says we'll do it the other way around mm -hmm. but in this it's the other way around to start with so there's none of that yeah. to and fro it's just he says you behead me today and then I'll come and behead you tomorrow well, it opens up a lot of l wonderful banter doesn't it in exactly the version. yeah but it makes you wonder whether in fact that's a clever literary device to make it more interesting I don't know because I, I felt as well that there's you know part of uh, Kuroi's quest to to find you know that sense of fair play um that it was only sort of in ulster or in ireland that he could get people who understood that because it was fair play it could, it could work either, either way. way yeah no i think it's brilliant yeah it? Uh, it, it's wonderfully subtle mm. so but in this version with uath there's none of that it's just straight away uh, you behead me today and i'll come back and behead you mm. tomorrow and as you might expect both uh, loigra and connell um welsh pardon the expression, on their deal. Yeah. And uh, Cúchulain sticks to it. Not the best it. expression. No, it's not. It's <laughs> not. But that's why I asked the pardon of the entire Welsh nation. Um, but in this, curiously, when Cúchulain sort of lays himself down to be beheaded, uh, here, Uath brings the axe down three times, mm -hmm. rather than just that once that we saw in the main thrust of the tale. Each time it's the blunt side. Yes, yeah, it's blunt side down each time, but, you know, it's sort of like he, he does it twice, sort of pulling his punches, and then the third time you expect it to 
come to fruition, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, Uith then says, Cuchulain has won the champion's portion, yeah. and they go back to Evan, but then when they get back to Evan, the other two won't stick it by this. It didn't happen here. Yeah. Now, you see, that doesn't make sense, no. because they were deliberately sent away to get judgment from other places yeah. since they couldn't decide in-house, as it were. Exactly. So, since that this is what the decision by Shanika and Matt Roy, yeah. you know, all of them have said, Yeah. You know, you must go to somewhere else and get yeah. this decided. Then when they come back and say, we've got it decided, they go, no, it didn't happen here, so it doesn't count. Exactly, yeah. There's very little uh, integrity to that version of the story. Exactly. It just doesn't hold together. Yeah, and um, I mean, it does seem to be very poorly kind of stitched in here to the tale. I kind of get the feeling that the author knew another version and just wanted to get it in somewhere mm-hmm. um, and even that kind of trying to bring it back to the main thread of the story by saying they get back to Evan and they won't stick with it quite that contrived it is it? very contrived and it's not even it's not a great deal of effort <laughs> put into the contrivance the only positive thing you can say is it helps to explain why Colin gives up yeah yeah, uh, but I think he's about to do that anyway. Exactly, it doesn't yeah. need the mm. extra version. That's why we left it out when we yeah. told the story. Yeah, it just intrudes. And it, it spoils the climax. It does exactly, you know. And and what what's the point? I mean, the beheading game is so singular. But it's so central. It's exactly. really what this whole tale is about. Yeah, it's what everything is leading up to, yeah. and it's it's part of what's so distinct about the tale as well. So to do it twice does really spoil it. It does give us a strong indication that there was a lively oral tradition for this story. Yeah, before it. You know, and now we've got several collect, several versions being collated. Exactly, yeah. And the uh, one thing I did wonder is, do you think the beheading game could have developed in Kerry? It'd be a local variant, as it were, connected to Kuroi. Well, I, t- I think that Kuroi's version is the original, um, and that this actually, it might be rather than a, a local Kerry version, it's possible that it's a local Ulster version. That makes more sense. Yeah. Now, I did come across, I've, I've lost the reference, but when I was doing sort of various readings of the Onomasticum Godelicum, um, which is the Hogan's list of place names, I did come across a place that was near kind of Schlieffua, Dharma, that kind mm. of area, um, that was called something like Othbwitha. So, you know, mm. Bwitha's Ford. Uh, now, I'm not sure whether it was off with it or what it was, but it did kind of just ring indication. a little bell that it might be that there's a local place which is related yeah. to Bwitha, and so that kind of inspired yeah. a local version. One thing I will say, though, I don't know which way this is going, mm. is, of course, that it, it creates this version of sending them first to Yellow Son of White and mm. then onto sort of Horror Son of Terror. Mm. It's very much in the mould of the tradi- of a traditional um, European folktale yeah. style, where you send, it's usually a girl going to the witch or the ogre, mm. and they're first of all sent to the one who says, ah, no, I'll send you to my mother, who sends them to her grandmother, mm-hmm. and each time the witch or the ogre or the giant, if it's a boy, gets mm. more and more horrible and yeah. huger and huger. Oh, think of even the three dogs in the story of the Tinderbox. With the one with the eyes as big as saucers and eyes as big as yeah. dinner plates. It's so traditional. You'll yeah. find the three and mm. each one getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, and nastier and, more, and nastier. And each time they get something which will help them to succeed in the final quest. Mm. Now, whether this is a prototype of that or yeah. whether, in fact, it is drawn on a European folktale mm. type, Oh, I think it's impossible to say and I'm not sure it matters. Exactly. But it does very much read like a folktale version. It does read like a version that one of the authors of the, the tale was familiar with. And mm. very much like um, in uh, previous 
sections where they were sent off to uh, Ercole and Savara. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly with Savara, where they had to then go and face these Genedi Glinna, mm-hmm. the, the sort of spirits of the valley, um, who are also known as Uatha, by the way, also known as horrors. Mm-hmm. Um, that while it didn't necessarily fit into that flow of the story, it still has the yeah. same sort of There is this under, under, underlying folktale type. Yeah applied all the way through but as I say I really can't say without going into the to, to explorations of each variant exactly. of these to look at its age and background yeah all you can say is it's just a common folktale type yeah and it's very clear here as well exactly but what isn't and what is unique is that this is the importance of this first ever version of the famous beheading game this yeah. is where it seems to begin absolutely the best known version of it must be Gawain and the Green Knight yes but this is a much earlier version yes well I mean Gawain is what 14th, 14th late 14th late century. 14th century uh, the text that we're dealing with here is 9th century possibly early 10th Eight, so that's yeah. already a few centuries back it might go back even further than that. Yeah, though. there are classical sources that give sort of indications, mm. aren't there, that the beheading game might have been known about at least as a story. Yes. Well, this is the thing that with classical sources, you always have to treat them with care because, you know, they are reports of reports of reports mm-hmm. by outsiders. Um, very often they're referring to the continental Celts. Well, these stories are definitely of the continental, continental Celts. Celts. Exactly. Um, so, you know, there's there's several removes from the material that we're talking about. Um, but there are these interesting references, mm-hmm. and we find them in Athenaeus, who was, wrote a piece called the Diagnosophists in the 3rd century CE. Now, this is a massively satirical piece, which was the Philosopher's Banquet. Yeah, dinner know. table talks. Exactly, yes. Dinner table philosophy. Yeah, yeah. They had to be good at that at that time. Oh yeah, they? big time. But uh, what interests us is that he quotes an earlier source, Posidonius. About 51 BCE. About that, yeah. yeah. And um, Posidonius uh, was a bit more kind of straightforward and what uh, Athenaeus is doing... Travelers Tales. He wrote exactly. all sorts of Travelers Tales, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Now we've lost a lot of those, but as with a lot of these early classical sources uh, we really only know them from being quoted by other authors yeah now i think what's relevant is there's in book four there's two quotes mm-hmm. and he's quoting Posidonius exactly and I, I, it's best i read this yeah. actually but Posidonius, in the 23rd book of his history says there was a custom that a hind quarter of pork was put on the table and the bravest man took it and if anyone else laid claim to it then the two rose up to fight till one of them was slain mm-hmm. now that just seems to reference the hero's portion. And that sense that, uh, you know, contention over champion's portion as well. So it seems that the uh, fight for the heroes or the champion's portion mm. can be pushed back to a story a thousand years before. Exactly, yeah. Uh, even if it's the continental Celts. Yeah, yeah. It still sort of pushes our date back in another millennium. But there's another piece which mm-hmm. is even weirder and just seems to reference yeah. the heading game itself. Mm. Now he says that this is a tale told long ago. It's yeah. a tale of long ago. It's e- not... Even Posidon is saying this is what they used to do in the old days so makes it a story exactly rather than what actually happens yes but anyway it goes like this and other men in the theater i presume he means the hall yeah feasting hall having received some silver or gold money and some even for a number of earthen vessels full of wine having taken pledges that the gifts promised shall really be given and having distributed them among their nearest connections have laid themselves down on doors with their faces upwards and allowed some bystander to cut their throats with a sword yeah Like I say, we can't treat this as a historical record. 
Not at all. No, but what we have to remember, we mentioned this before, particularly with the Greeks, is that um, by this time, in this sort of post-Platonic Socratic, Socratic time, um, the Greeks were big into their euhemerization. Um, yes. And this making, is the, making everything into history. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the, any mythology, any story. You, so were the Irish monks. Oh yeah, exactly. They were doing the same thing. You know, two thousand years later. Um, but I think that it does show that the story was being told—a story about contention for the champion's portion, and about that sort of willingly allowing yourself to be yeah. beheaded. There was some um, references in sort of Greek tales that the Celts would. Um, give pledges mm. for the next world that yes. they so believed that life continued mm. but, but again this is difficult to know yes that this vague suggestion that mm. they believed so strongly that an iou in, yeah in this in world this world could yeah. be paid in the next yeah yeah but i think this is there's something else going on here yes bear in mind all of the degrees of separation if you like that we've got a third century author referencing a first century bce author who's saying Tell i have tale. heard that this used to happen in the old days you know so there's all these sort of layers of, of assumption, yeah. but there's a kernel of something really interesting in there. And there's a sense that the beheading game was central to a story mm. a very long time ago. Exactly, yeah. And we do know that the Irish version in Brickrow's Feast mm. is the first time that it becomes literary. Exactly. Literally. Literary. literary. Not yes. literally, hopefully. <laughs> and of course, this brings us to the best known version of it, which is Gawain. Gawain. And I know that you and I both love Gawain and the Green Knights. Yeah, well, I think we've both ended up studying it in, in university. It's point or another. I have to say that the original text, neither of us have really are able to try and work in the original language. No, it's, it's very difficult. It's not like Chaucer. No. Chaucer is readable with a little bit of um, hard work and practice, yeah. but it is perfectly readable. Mm. This was but Gawain, which was put together in the late 14th century by the, author, the unknown author who's generally known as the Pearl Poet. Mm or the Gawain poet, mm. and um, he wrote in a Northwest, Northwest Midlands dialect, yeah. which is very hard to read nowadays. Yeah. Well, it's much closer to the kind of Norse influences mm. than to the French influences. You know, Chaucer's English was influenced by the sort of the Norman French, and so is closer to the English we speak today. Now, we can't really get into a full discussion of Gawain, because no. that would be going into a whole new text. Exactly. But I think it might be fun to put a text to the, a link to the text on the blog. Absolutely. Maybe Tolkien's translation, Professor Tolkien's yes, translation might be nice. nice. But you still need a modern translation. Exactly, yeah. Because if you haven't yeah. read it, it's worth reading. It is worth reading, definitely. I think it might be fun to just put a few comparisons together between Gawain and Brick Crew because yeah. it throws light on our own text. Oh, I think so, yeah. Um, these aren't in any order. They're just things that struck me and we've been talking about them. Mm -hmm. In our text, the heroes eventually have to submit to the other world authority. Yeah. We talked about how the three levels of the, the story. Yes, yeah. That and they... eventually they have to go to the third level. Yeah, which is the other world and uh, the authority that's represented by Kuroi in our text. And although it's another world authority, there's no Christian influence. It's not a spiritual authority. No, no it's terribly physical. Um, but it is connected to sort of the ancestral uh, figures. Yeah, so in Gawain, the other world authority is quite clearly Christian. Absolutely. You know, yeah. he goes to the Green Chapel and, mm. uh, and so forth. Mm. Um, now, another thing that struck me was that the heading game in our text mm. takes place 
after feasting. Oh yes. You know, they're yeah. both, they're replete, they're game, they're fully gamed up. Yeah. They're fully feasted up and yeah. they've obviously been drinking. Exactly, yes. But very, very clearly from the very beginning of Gawain and the Green Knight, mm. it's clearly stated that the feast cannot begin yeah. Until some marvellous happens. Exactly. Arthur's custom. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which is, it could make people very hungry. I tell you, our <laughs> heroes wouldn't have put up with that. Oh, no. Well, also, as far as I remember, in Gawain, it's the, the beheading game sort of bookends, if you like, the entire tale. Oh, it is. It's yeah. the whole of the tale. Exactly. Whereas it, ours is just that last bit. Yeah. In our one, the heroes at Croy's fought before their beheading game. Mm. But Gawain ends up at uh, Sir Bertilac's palace. Or, yeah. Castle mm. um, as an effect of the beheading. Yes, yeah. So yeah, with ours, it's a, it's a precursor, and they've already kind of met and been tested by Kuroi before the final test of the beheading game. Whereas, yeah, Gawain and it, it's ends up back there. Worth saying that Sabertilak mm. um, is almost clearly a version of. Backlack. That's what's thought, and that's where like I first come across the comparison between these two tales was um, in an English lecture, uh, looking at Gawain and the Green Knight, and that was sort of I one of the things that was said. Thought. Mm, that it's it's because Bertilac is such a strange name, and it seems to have no source. Exactly. So it's you know as a an English kind of trans so transliteration held, of Backlack. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is odd considering that means uncouth person. Exactly. Yeah. Peasant and, uh, yeah. And here we have Sir Bertilac yes. in his wonderful robes. Yeah, yeah. Sir Bogger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Also, I think it's interesting to compare the women. Oh, yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, um, Sir Bertilac's wife is almost used as a temptation and a test. Oh, yeah. Big time. Well, almost. She's she used yeah. as a temptation and a test. Yeah. In our story, the women do the testing. Yes. Very early on, you've got all the testing of Maeve and mm. her daughters, and there's no question of what sort of testing that is. Yeah. So the idea of um, uh, Kuroi's wife holding herself as a test but mm. remaining chaste. Yeah, no, it just wouldn't work. Wouldn't make work. sense to the audience, would it? No, not at all. And, you know, that is quite a significant difference, you know, that, that in our text, even though it was written in a time when, you know, Christianity was, was the sort of mainstream religion of Ireland, the mainstream ideology um there is still it's still there it's even still if clearly there yeah well some of the authors and redactors didn't quite get it but the, still the idea is that a hero an ancient yeah. hero is tested for his prowess yeah but how much of that is in the 19th century text and how much is in the, the late 19th century early 20th century translations well, where is the badlerization well no just when we were talking about the, te yeah, the testing right, before you know we said they that don't some, quite get it exactly that some authors seem to need to put in an extra test because they had you know, glossed over or not realised that But nevertheless, that was part um, of it. you know, it's not in Gawain, the whole test is one of chastity. Absolutely, it's to it's, do it resisting that. <laughs> yeah, it's resisting temptation, you know, all the time. Oh, don't tempt me with your wiles, woman, I have to remain pure. And I suppose you know. in some ways, Gawain is all about submission to the axe. Yes. It's very much this submission. Mm. Uh, whereas Bricker is all about upholding honour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously it's there with with Gawain. Gawain is also upholding his honour. Yes. But that's not the way the Pearl Poet mm. really presents it. The, well, also, there, there are different senses of honour, you know, um, and in uh, ours, it's very, very clear that it is that, you know, core of Irish law and society, which is the upholding of contracts, mm. you know, that once you've agreed to a contract, even if it's 
deleterious to yourself, yeah. you still have to uphold it. And I think that's a better way of putting it in that case. If Gawain is about honour, mm. uh, then Bricker is about contracts. Yes. I think that's a, that's much clearer. Mm. We sometimes use the word honour. Yes. But yeah. in the Irish sense, I think contracts is much clearer. Yeah. All that stuff that you get from the prelude to the, the Shenicus yeah. Moore, where it says, you know, without contracts, the world is in chaos. Uh, yeah, because it also allows for the legal trickery, mm. which is okay. Exactly. In yeah. Irish honour. Yes. Yeah. You know, if you can get away with a bit of, uh, of legal trickery, mm -hmm. that hasn't ruined your honour, whereas in the Gawain sense, it would have done. Yes. There's one or two other things. I mean, the the Green Knight. Yes. That's... Now, how do we get from the great giant in his uh, hide and his dun cloak, mm -hmm. you know, his drab cloak, yeah. to this Green Knight with his strongly Christmas seasonal quality? Yes. What do you make of that? Um, well, it's a bit sort of difficult to, to know whether there is a direct correlation between the descriptions like of Crudoy and the Scoil and the Scoth in our text and the way that the Green Knight is described. There's one thing that struck me all the way through. Mm. I mean, we, we've constantly said that Kuroi and Dagda mm. are described in a very similar way. Yes. This rather uncouth, ugly mm. cloak. Well, we might talk about that a bit more. Mm. But it struck me that we also said, go back to when we were talking about the Dagda, mm. with his gift-giving. We've said he's he's really the Irish... Uh, Father, Father Christmas. Santa Claus. Yeah, Absolutely. Father. And in fact, the English father christmas mm -hmm. until coca-cola got hold of mm -hmm. him was always dressed in green yeah green robes look at the way um dickens portrays yes, him in yes. christmas carol he's certainly not dressed in a red suit no 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 you can still buy in england you can mm. buy father christmases which he's never known as santa he's yeah. always father christmas mm. uh is uh, still dressed in green mm. Mm. the holly yeah and um and in going as well the timing of it is around sort of Christmas New oh, Year. Oh, it's New Year, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so that makes it very, it very much uh, pins it to that time of year and that figure. Um, I think it, it would be quite a roundabout, it might be kind of an unconscious connection almost mm -hmm. between, because even in, in our text, um, you know, it's not explicit. I wouldn't the call Kuroi it and connection, Dada. I call yeah. it association. Exactly, exactly. So I don't think it's a deliberate thing, I don't think it's no, a direct not, thing. It's not deliberate in but the, even the might, oral story, yeah. but the one draws on the other exactly. until they eventually yeah. become the same. Yeah. I mean, this happens to Arthur all the time, mm, it happens mm. to Robin Hood all the time, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that by association in the end there becomes one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, again, it might sort of come from a, a shared source, if you like, yeah. of the figure. They might share a source. But um, well, if we said the Dagda is far more important and mm, far more central, mm, uh, it's almost it's been forgotten. Yeah, like yeah. Every story, he's yeah. there at the centre. Exactly. He's the oldest one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, a green is interesting though mm. because of the way green has come to mean sexuality, fertile fertility, youth, mm. but also terribly unlucky, mm. uh, otherworldish, fairy mm. becomes associated with witches and all sorts of this complete mixture yeah, of yeah. attitudes towards green. Mm. Then you've got the green man mm -hmm. um, who is both positive but becomes feared as a sort of devilish figure in yeah. Christian, you know, in some Christian mm. texts. There's one possibility, I suppose, as to this green. There was, um, in Alice Buchanan's 1932, The Irish Framework of Gawain and the Green Knight, mm. she makes some suggestions which might explain how the knight gets to be green. Yes, possibly. I, you don't really like it, do I you? I don't, but if you go through sort of her point where the, in the like the death of, of Kuroi, that he's described as a man in a green mantle, and or grey mantle. Grey mantle, yeah. yeah. And that she's talking about how the term glass 
can get very confused between sort of greys and greens and and so on and that that might it means be. green in the modern irish and i think that's what confuses people oh it does yeah and you know we've talked before about color words and and how they're they don't translate terribly well i think it's it's a little bit of a stretch because for for one thing um the english sort of redactors if they had heard glass they might have if they were familiar with welsh in modern welsh glass is used as a blue Right. So, you know, so even between Irish and Welsh, uh, there's a difference of how they've come through into the modern language. And I think it's a it's stretching it a little bit. Um, Also, in the descriptions within our text, which, you know, if there was a a, an Irish source, it's it's bound to be the Fred Rickran rather than any other stories about Curoi. In our text, it's always other, which is um, as a color word, which is that dun colour which used to mean the colour of water but then got transferred to an otter and then became, you know, the colour of an otter. Um, And I think that, yeah, it just, I can't see how that would come through as a green knight in in the way that he's described. Is it just green in the sense of nature? I think that's more likely. I generally have a problem these days, people who say things like, I like nature, because nature is the world, you know. Yeah, but the nature of. Yes. What, it's just the word meaning what it is. Exactly, yes. <laughs> and I, I like whatever I like is. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of, if you like, the natural world and nature as a concept of things that are wild and grow and, you know, don't obey human laws, there's a completely different background between our tale and Gawain. So now let's use nature in its proper sense. Yes, yes. Like, you know, the nature of, of yes. our text. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, in our text and in other Irish texts, uh, you've got order is court, rightness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that rightness is often, you know, something that would otherwise be called, if you like, natural justice. Yeah. You know, things being in their proper place and time and in balance and so yeah. on. It's absolutely central. Yeah. I've always referred to it as the Egyptian mart. mart. Exactly. It's yeah. exactly that. Mm. You know, you, the world cannot exist without this balance. Exactly, yeah. Um, but we have something really significantly different within Gawain, and it's partly that sort of slightly later Christian mm. ideology that actually opposes nature with order. That order is something that is it's set in opposition human. to. They, exactly. They are, yes, that the, the, almost this is where we begin the conquest of nature. Yes, yeah. And seeing ourselves as separate from the yeah. natural world, yeah. Uh, the conquest, oh, we have to rise above our own nature. Yeah, well, like resisting the sexual temptation. Yes, you know? yes. And it's, that would be absurd. Yeah. In the, the Irish, Irish text. Exactly, yeah. So that's a very different yeah. setting that really changes the character of the yeah. entire tale. And so from that point of view, you know, because Gawain has to face down this Green Knight, it might be sort of connected with that sense of facing down natural drives and, and the yeah. natural world yeah. in order to rise above it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's very interesting because in some ways that is not what actually the Green Knight does. Yeah. He's not aggressive in mm. that sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is why some some people have suggested he represents Christ, mm. which, you know, it's a green man, Christ, and oh, the dog do, you know. Yeah. It gets a bit absurd. <laughs> yeah. One other thing I was going to say, but now I think I'm disagreeing with myself, is of course the axe um, in Gawain, it's the three times mm. over the last 
touches, cuts his neck slightly because, yes. what was it, he took the token, he yes. took the girdle. Yes, took he? a love token from yeah. Bertilac's wife, so he slightly relented. He's slightly yeah. guilty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, but then of course the axe does fall on Cahullan three times in the... In that uh, folk, the version folk version with Uth, yeah. But, but it's the blunt side down each time. Yeah, the blade exactly. never touches his neck. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. as we said before, we think that that is a, a sort of an intrusion. Yeah. Um, so but it may have affected the pearl poet. It might have. It might have influenced the, the Gawain, yes, with having yeah. three three blows of the axe. But now we come to something I keep wanting to ask. Well, <laughs> who is Kuroi? I mean... <laughs> To me, he just seems to be a version of the Dagda. Yeah, they have an awful lot in common. Uh, we've talked about the descriptions, this kind of large and uncouth fellow who's uh, dressed in hides and drab colours. and oh, even the, the fact that his tunic hardly covers his rump. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very much like the wonderful descriptions of the Dagda that we get in Kath Megaturids, um, where he's uh, sent off to the Fuvara camp and they laugh at his appearance or they refrain themselves out or is it instead yes, of her, yeah exactly and all all that kind of stuff but it does go beyond that um for one thing we meet kuroi particularly in that last scene yeah, yeah, in yeah. the heading game where he's carrying a great big club and he's carrying an axe because Dagda has his great club. Yes. And it's associated with the oak. Yes, he is. Um, the the club that the Dagda has is supposed to be, it's sometimes described as a wheeled fork. Mm -hmm. You know, so it seems to be sort of the fork of a tree that's dragged along the ground. And, and here the suggestion that um, his, uh, that, that Kuroi's great club mm. is tree-shaped branching. Yeah. And again, it would have been the bowl of the roots yes. where the strength is. Exactly, yeah. So you've got this tree fork quality mm. again. Yeah. Yeah. And as for the axe, it took me a while to realise, but of course, in the exchange between the Dagda and the Index daughter, daughter, when they're doing their, well, you know... And I'll, the mark of the axe in every tree. Exactly. Yeah. You know, when she, uh, she says, I'll be an oak in every pass. And, and he says, exactly. Tree, yeah. yeah. So, um, and that gives us a bit of a connection between the Dagda and the oak, although I think more is made of that than is really Possibly. there. We just want it to be there, really. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... That's the only real connection I can come up with. Kuroi, on the other hand, he's the son of an oak wood. He's Kuroi mm -hmm. Magdara, so he's the son of an oak wood. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of those kind of qualities, and particularly um, that business of fair play and justice and keeping to contracts and verbal trickery. Yes, as well. you know that that's something that we're very familiar with from the data. Mm. So yeah, they have an awful lot in common. It's hard to see it as pure coincidence. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it is coincidence. I'm always hesitant, though, to kind of completely identify I think, one not, character with conflate. another. Exactly. I don't want to conflate at all. They're yeah. not. We see too many, too much going wrong yeah. when you get conflation. Exactly, yeah. But you can have association. Yes, The exactly. association of characters, mm. somehow you can use them almost um, instead of each other. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, we've seen problems with artificial conflation. Exactly, yeah. So don't let's do it ourselves. No, no. <laughs> One thing we will say about him is he's totally, with, with, with Kuroi, he's totally ubiquitous. Exactly, yeah. He, it seems to be, ha, it's Kuroi all the time. Yes, um, although the identification doesn't really come till the very end. But yeah, all these different it shapes. Was him all the 
time. Exactly, yes. It was a bit of a Scooby-Doo, you know, so pull the mask off. And, oh, look, it was Kuroi right from the start. But, yeah, he's there as the shade and the mist. He demands the payment for the uh, for damage, damage to the, the meadow. meadow. Which is, again, that's a very Dagda thing. Um, he appears in those guises like Uwath and... And Savara. Possibly even Savara. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who, again, has that connection with things being done at the right time. You know, uh, seasonal rightness and the you know yeah, summer food rent. Which, so again, on. to me, would connect him with the Dagda. Exactly. He's very much concerned with the rightness. Yes. And his yeah. harp of four corners. And yeah. This justice yeah. goes with the, the music of the harp. Mm, exactly. Even his identification in the beheading game mm. is, is in disguise. Yeah. Then, yeah, but it was still Kuroi. Yeah, but it's almost parenthetical. You know, it's almost that way, as I think I said before, in... Uh, uh, Kath Megaturid, with that, the woman mentioned here is the Morrigan, you know, that sort of, well, the listeners would know, of course. I think he also has a connection with Bran the Blessed. I don't want to go into the whole story sure. of Bran now, um, the mm. Welsh Bran. Yes, yeah. Whose there... head ends up buried on under the Tower of London. Exactly, yeah. So we've got a head that survives beyond uh, the demise of the body, if you like, yeah. with Bran. Um, he's definitely a giant. Uh, yeah, exactly. And there there are other similarities, like in the, the saga of Kuroi, or as it's Kunroi, uh, part of a bride price that he is paid um, when he marries Blothnad. Uh, involves a wondrous cauldron. Oh, yeah, well, they yeah. are dag dirt and cauldron. We've got yeah. a cauldron. You should have said yeah. that earlier. <laughs> what more do you want? <laughs> Another, that's probably the strongest association of all. Possibly, yeah. And, of course, Brian has the cauldron. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, there's even a troublemaker, and it's Nivian. Mm. If I pronounce that right, sorry. My pronunciation isn't very good, but I know the character. Yeah. Uh, who disfigures the horses. Oh, yes. Yeah. And there, there is a battle between horses. Mm. Though this is stretching it. This yes. This yeah. just conflating just things for the sake of it. Mm. But nevertheless, it is interesting mm. that the only troublemaker of that kind mm. is that character in the story with the marriage of, of yeah. Bran's yes. sister. Yes. Uh, but again, I don't want to go into that too mm. deeply. It just struck me that again, yeah, you've got points of comparison. You have got points of comparison. They are no more than that. Yes. You know, I've sort of wondered whether he's a sort of post Milesian Dagda figure. Now that probably needs a bit of explaining. Yes. <laughs> um, it's it's one of these things where again. There are plenty of Irish Euhemerizers who, as we said before, who will give a date to when the Sons of Mill came to Ireland and defeated the two of the Dedanon oh, and what have you. Yes, I mentioned that yeah, earlier, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. But there is a sense in which um, the tale of Cath Magathurid, which is, in terms of the date of the text, is about comparable to mm -hmm. Flath Frickwin, has a very different uh, sense of the world, that it's just the two of the Dedanon, uh, they're so-called enemies are really just other family members um but it's all kind of within one sort of world intertribal what well, conflict yes yeah yeah it is what conflict but yeah uh, intertribal rivalry yeah feuding. yeah yeah as there is between uh Corken yes and, and uh, Ulster and Ulster yeah and as Evan mm. but nevertheless here you've got this outsider yes and you have the sense of the other world and other world characters. It is not so outside. Exactly, it's very different. And in fact, uh, there's a text which is almost like a companion text to Fethrickrin, Mescalids, which is the intoxication of the Ulsterman, which is great gas. Might be know. worth putting that one on the yeah. on the blog because there's not time to go into it. Exactly. Yet another major. Another, yeah, another massive saga. Yeah, but it does. Its opening lines are terribly interesting because it opens with the story of the sons of Mila Spagna came to Ireland and uh, they defeated the two of the day through their cleverness mm -hmm. and then Avergan 
divided Ireland between the Sons of Mill, who got the overground half of Ireland, and the Tuatha Danann got the underground half of Ireland, which they shared with the people of the Shi. So that sense that another people have come and that the Tuatha Danann then become very other, very different, you know, and that... have become ancestors mm. at that point. Yes, yeah. And in the same way, Kuroi is not a, not not regarded in this text as an ancestor, mm. but he spends all his time abroad. Exactly, and that's how it and has never shed blood in Ireland. It's never eaten, eaten Ireland exactly. because he's always abroad. In yeah. other words, uh, what was other mm. now becomes foreign. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's a very different worldview. It is, and of course, the doctor was never a foreigner. You know, it's quite the opposite in many ways. But yes, Kuroi then, because of that association with that world, is foreign and yeah. associated with You know, with this foreigners. is far too big a subject. We could spend a whole podcast yes. just talking about the pre-Milesian and post-Milesian view of the world. Yes. And I have to say, those are artificial terms. They are. And, you know... It's the... just useful in terms of the Book of Invasions. Exactly. It's just a way but, of organising it. Yeah, so hence hence that example of the beginning of Mescal, you know, that that is it, the world in which it's set has the arrival of the Sons of Mill as the end of the reign of the Tuatha de Danann. You know, that, that is part of the world that informs that text. I think we should definitely do a podcast, yep. a whole podcast episode on this because mm. it's a fascinating it discussion is. Yeah, yeah. and there's so much to compare. Mm. But, you know, this is already getting to be long enough <laughs> conversation <laughs> as it is. <laughs> yeah, but in, in that sense that we have maybe Kuroi as a post-Milesian version of the Dagda, you could almost see sort of the Dagda and Lu or Luk and their roles in Kathmagathurud and then you have Kuroi and Kuchulun oh, here yeah, yeah. and we were wondering did Kuchulun kind of you know wrestle wrangle his way into a story of Connell and Lohira you know we had the same problem with Luke that you just couldn't keep mm. him out the story and you, you know? can't keep Cullen out exactly either. yeah and uh, yeah again Lou is or Luke is half other world. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so so is Kukulun. There, there yeah. are a great many. You feel as though their stories are largely interchangeable mm. to the point where obviously Kukulun's father, exactly, his other world father is Lou anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Oh goodness me. This this is a really interesting subject. Mm. The two worldviews. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think we better try and yeah just leave that to one hand aside for now. Yeah. There's another question I wanted to do. Of ask. course. Yeah. I mean another one. Let's go through these characters. Yeah. Who is Bl Blothnod? Blothnod. Or Blothnod in the modern. Blonde and modern Irish, Irish yeah. Um, well, she's a very interesting character for all kinds of reasons. Um, the, one of the first things that a lot of people would draw on is that her name, Blothnod, is pretty much exactly cognate to the Welsh Blothwith. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it means... I was going to say, there yeah. must be a connection between the two of them. Yeah, there must be. But well, In terms of their names. Exactly. The stories don't really fit one-to-one -one in that sense. Um, one of Blathnod's roles, obviously she's kind of stands in as proxy for Kuroi, who's off pretending to be a giant. As the Bertilak's wife does. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's no reason to expect that she wouldn't have extended the usual female hospitality to the heroes. It's not specifically mentioned. Um, but in other stories, Cúchulain comes and elopes with Blothnod. And this is where, you know, she uses the, the trope of pouring milk into the River Fenglas so that Cúchulain can 
uh, track his way up the river and find his way into the fort. Yeah, after we mentioned that earlier, hidden, I yeah. think, didn't we? Yeah. When I was thinking about the connection between that last story of Fionn. Yes, yeah. And how he moves the river. Exactly, yeah. And uh, then at that point, um, Blothnad becomes uh, Una yes. for some reason. Yes. <laughs> I have no idea why. But again, in, in the, the, the other text I mentioned, the Adat Conroy, the saga of Kuroi, um, is all actually revolves around how Blothnad is yet another one of the daughters of Cuncover mm -hmm. and that Kuroi comes to Evan to, to seek a wife but that somehow he uses magic or some kind of a love potion or you know something dishonest if you like to make her fall in love with him and he takes her off with this great bride price which includes the cauldron and heaps of silver and gold and what have you um, but that once they've left, the the rest of the Ullads decide that because she was taken with this use of magic, that it, it wasn't, wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. It and wasn't so, justice. Exactly. And so, the contract is null and void. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, can run off with her. Exactly. Well, Cuchulain is essentially sent as mm -hmm. an emissary uh, to go and retrieve her and retrieve her bride price. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, there is this kind of sense where you have, you know, this this sort of tricky darkish shifting figure who has um dishonestly um got this flower wife flower bride of blothnad and then the young hero has to go and retrieve her and save her and bring her back mm. to the real world and there are some yeah though it's the comparisons. other way around isn't it exactly i in, mean in there the the bride is made for the young hero exactly yeah and yeah but she is she doesn't want you know it's her being made by magic it yes. is unfair yeah and it, it, you feel desperately sorry for her. Yeah, then. yeah, in the Welsh. Uh, yeah. In the Welsh version. Mm. My favourite version of that is probably uh, The Alan Owl Service by Alan Garner, which exactly. is a lovely telling it's, it's of that fantastic. tale. It's fantastic, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so again, there, there are comparisons, but you can't make a sort of a one-to-one. -one, no, no, uh, there isn't. But yeah. they, other than the two women must have had... You know, there is a connection definitely mm. between, the, between the two women, yeah. although they're completely different characters. Exactly, that's the thing. Their, their names may be similar, but their stories are very different. Well, what happens in the stories? But again, there must it's more than a coincidence. Mm. Mm. There must be either, I wouldn't say a unified source, again, but there, mm. there are characters who have different stories. Yes, but possibly a common source, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to tell mm. with that one. And in that sense, Kuroi does connect with Brown. Yes. Once again. Yeah. Yeah, again, with the, the uh, wife who is uh, wedded to someone unjustly um, and then has yeah. to be rescued. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But again, that's Brownwood. Mm. Uh, goodness, it's very difficult because yeah. I feel like we're trying to talk about half a dozen stories, exactly. <laughs> half a dozen stories that we're very familiar with. Yeah. But at the same time, I think we've got to be very careful to say they are not cognate. No, well, that's I think the the conclusion we've had to come to. We're is... constantly saying it. Yeah, yeah. Don't mix them up. They're no. not the same. But there are interesting similarities yeah, and absolutely. interesting motifs mm. which do do cross over. Mm. Okay, let's try another one of my favourites. <laughs> In which case, who is Brickrew? And why on earth does he vanish from the story? I know. It's it's a funny one that. I mean he's he's a an important character in these stories of the Ullads and Kruakan. It's called Fled Brickrew. Exactly, yeah. It's his Brickrew, feast. Yeah. You know, that he, he is the title character and in fact in a wonderful script that we found by uh, Emero Duffy that was written in the in the 19 teens. Oh yeah, we ought to talk about this separately. Exactly, but he actually makes Brickrew into the central character, you know, mm. because it's 
a story of his feast. So he plays a much bigger role in Nemo Duffy's writing of it. Come back to that. We will, on. we will, because yeah. it's a good one. Um, but yeah, Brickrew does sort of disappear. He disappears after they've thrown the hero. And yet he has a death tale, and they're not that common. Exactly, yeah. And you can tell sort of from a death tale how important somebody is, if you like. Mm, That's what I mean. If he has a death tale, he is significant in his own right. Yes, and he does kind of... He's there in the background in all kinds of stories of Diolid, but specifically his death tale is told... I think there's a couple of versions. One is within the Tynebo Flethesh, where he's at Cruachan, there's a racket of cows going on outside and bulls bellowing. And Fergus McRoy says, what is that dreadful noise happening out there? And Brickrew, in his usual sort of poison-tongued way, says, oh, they're just imitating the song you sang this morning. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> to which Fergus picks up five fickle pieces in his hand and he smashes them <laughs> into Brickrew's head. <laughs> Which they will be wanting to do for a very, very long time. Exactly. But not until Fergus is thrown out and has to go to, yeah. you know. Yeah. Oh, that's another story again. It is. That's it part is. of the main toy. There's another version where at the end of the time, Bo Kulnia, Brickrew gets trampled when the bulls have their final fight. But again, he's sort of lying sick in Kruachen when this happens. that makes him important. It does, rather, yeah. If he is trampled to death by the bulls, mm. and this story is remembered as it was told, yes. then he must be an important character. Yeah, yeah. But his... Nevertheless, I come back to it. He just doesn't take part in the story after they go to Kirkman. Yes. And it's, he, it's Beetletongue takes yeah. over his role. Over his role exactly. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that Beetletongue is not Brickroom. No, they are distinct. And in a lot of these um, sort of Ullard-based stories, they are, they're, they're both they're present. They're both there, aren't Yeah, they? yeah, as different characters. Yeah, it's an odd one. He gets left behind at Kirkman, mm-hmm. it seems, doesn't he? And of course, then his death tale is, is takes is place there. at Kirkman. Well, why doesn't he go back to Dunwither again? I don't know. I don't know, but it's not told in this story. Now, if it was a work of literature... Oh, yes. Now, if this was like a modern, you know, novel... He's Kuroi. Then you would expect him mm. to be one of Kuroi's disguises. Yeah, I'm, I'm going on all the time. Oh, I'm waiting for you. Know, yeah. I, if I was reading the book, I'd be waiting mm. to go, you know, to, to uncover the fact that it was Kuroi who'd set the whole thing up yes. and disguised or taken over Brick Room. Mm. I mean, that's me wanting a balance to a modern story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it wouldn't have made a jot of difference to the original audience, partly because... No story was, if you like, complete in on itself. They were always related to other stories mm, that yeah. you kind of already knew. So it wouldn't matter to the original audience that you don't get any more of Brickrew after Kruken. But you know story. that he's going to die at Kruken at a further mm. point. You know that he appears in other stories. So it doesn't bother you. So it's, it's almost so like he ha- the, the, the tale of his death is already known. Mm. That happens at Kruken, so he must be at Kruken, so he can't be at... Yeah, Evan. or or that it just or maybe they just don't let him in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or that it just it just doesn't matter because yeah, I think you more know, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah, it's so, irrelevant. Yeah. Okay, I've always generally disliked Cahoon. Mm. It's probably fairly obvious because he's a brat. Yes. But in working on Brickrew, mm-hmm. I've begun to feel that I actually like the lad. Yeah, there's you know there's a real development. There is. I mean, it's, to his character in this story. Yeah, I think there's genuine character development and that whole thing of, you know, trying to prove himself, trying to prove himself, trying to prove himself, finally giving up. And it's only after giving up that, you know, mm. his, his sort of genuine inner heroism, if you like, wins through. And the fact 
that he always misses the point. Oh yeah, yeah. That way that he misinterprets the the the, la the applause of the boys at Crook mm. and the way he misinterprets that hero's leap into the fort of Kuroi. Yeah, it's, you know, it's there's a character here. Yeah, and someone who, if you're writing his modern story, mm. you'd have to give him a sort of touch of Asperger's or something mm. in the way that he just he always wants to be there, but he doesn't quite get what yeah. everybody else gets he yeah. sees it in a, he he sees clearly mm. but he doesn't see what other people see yes yeah I, I mean this again is entirely modern this is yeah. not what's really happening yeah but nonetheless i think that it is you know very interesting that a literary piece which it is from the ninth century has something as modern as character development and i think it's genuinely there you know. And it's not that common. No, it's not. And um, yeah, it's given me more sympathy for Cuchulain as well, because it almost has that sort of Bildungsroman element of a, a boy having to grow up, you know, yes, and having... Yes, I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. I've come to really like this yeah. text quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, the text, not the translation. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is that only the last test is genuine. Yes. All the way through you've got this sort of irreverent attitude. Yeah. Which suddenly changes at the end. So yeah. there's a there's a uh, development in style as yeah. well. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is quite remarkable. Absolutely. The yeah. deliberate uh, jokiness yeah. all the way through. Yeah. And actually at the hero's expense. Yes, exactly. That they are taking the piss out of, you know, but quite regularly. There's nothing um, irreverent or there's nothing other than a sympathy. Mm towards Cahullan in that final test. And even to Cunla Neugra, even yes. though they do sort of renege on their pledge, it's it's kind of understood, you know, that they, they aren't expected to see it through, you know, so the, there's also sympathy to them. Mm. And in many ways, like all of the other contests, they were contests, they were set up as competitive, yeah. they were set up yeah. deliberately, you know, and and the heroes asked to be judged. They are they're asking yeah. for who deserves the champion's portion, but this you know, is different. exactly. It's it's all if you like preparation for how yeah. serious the last and, test is. And it may be, it explains this constant references to Cullen's me melancholy, yeah. his sadness, and sort of foreboding. Uh, you know, it's almost as though it. It, it foreshadows this final almost Gethsemane moment yeah. when he has to prepare himself to deliberately die. Yeah, exactly. And uh, sort of not in a massively heroic way, but in a way that fulfills a pledge. And so, you know, it's it's kind of going for that core, that justice, rather than a glorious yeah. warrior death. So this story is, I think, quite a... In terms of the literary, it's a mm. good story, yeah, as yeah. well as the, uh, shall we say, the, the colour of the oral telling, which yes. you can feel just shine, and the humour. Yeah, but there's yeah. something deeper. Yeah. It's not often you get that sense of, uh, you know, depth, mm. as well as the just uproarious humour. Yeah, it yeah. really does have a bit of everything. Yeah, it does. I have to really like this text. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose we better sum up. Yeah. Not just this part, the third part, but the whole three parts. The whole lot. Since we finally, finally got to the end <laughs> yes. of the text. <laughs> I suppose one of the things that struck me is how you can see the oral telling yes. shining through the literary telling. Yes, and, and while both of them are evident, you know, we've discussed all the way along well, how... definite literary elements. Yeah. The oral's still there. Exactly, and that you can actually distinguish them, I think, within mm. this text. And I think that there's very good evidence. I mean, aside from 
the sort of the possible classical illusion that we looked at in terms yeah. of dating the tale. But all this stuff about, you know, the three brothers and Cuchulain being the youngest of the three and getting it right. A lot and... of folktale elements. Exactly, yeah. But I think above all, in a way, that the telling of a story, a good story, mm. would have been like watching a television series. Sure. That's yeah, the yeah. nearest you can get to it. Mm. Therefore, you need lots of strong characters and you need lots of extremely visual elements. Yes. And that's what you've got in this tale. Yeah, yeah. And it would have been very funny. Exactly. But also quite scary at moments. Yeah, yeah. But it's very visual. Exactly, yes. Like the, the shade coming out of the mist and, yeah. you know, thwacking the charioteers and then you've got the sort of throwing, you know, picking up Loiger and Cunnell and lobbing them over the wall oh, of the fort, you know. Or Cullen trying to uh, emulate the boys yeah. in the wheel feet oh, and yes. overdoing it. Yeah, and... yeah. <laughs> Taking the roof off the house. Yeah. <laughs> all of those, all of those are, are very kind of, they're very oral. But then we also have the literary elements like we said about the structuring and restructuring and, and the collation of the versions. Collation of versions yeah. You know, it's interesting yeah yeah and i think they're, they're more distinct maybe in this text than in many others another i think important point about all three parts about the whole text mm. is looking at the other world and yeah. the way it looks at the status of the other world mm. i think is quite important in this tale it is and um particularly when you compare it with the story of Gawain and the green knight which it clearly has so much in common with and yet the worldviews are just so different. And different again, as we said, from Moitura. Yeah, yeah. Um, but here you have another world which is um, not of this world, mm. as in Moitura. Yeah. There is no other world. Yeah, just, it's just all one. Just yeah. all one. Mm. Um, but you, you, they're not feared. Mm. They're more foreign. Yes, exactly. And and all of that very deliberate placing of Kuroi as being in other countries. And then even when he comes to Evwin at the end for the beheading game, he says he's been all over yeah. Europe and Asia and Africa and all over the place looking for fair play. And of course, you may make friends or enemies from foreigners, yeah. but you they don't threaten your immortal soul. No, exactly. So it's not like the fairy world as being evil. Even a mischievous fairy no, it world. it is split at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, under the other world being under the ground mm. or over there exactly yeah they're no longer one but they're they're still two different peoples yes but they're as real as a foreign country i mean you used to say that you didn't believe in america you know it was well, what i mean is if i haven't been somewhere yeah. how can i actually say i believe in it exactly exactly you know, the pictures might be tricking yeah. me or you know but once i've been there yeah then it's real. Then it's real. And I think that's quite a common thing. I'm not against you know? America. No, no, no. But just well, as an example. <laughs> just as an example. I think that's yeah. true for, for a lot of people. Yeah. There is a way in which, you know, somewhere you've never been is, is a fiction, mm. you know. Mm. And definitely, you know, to people pre-air travel, you know, there was a lot mm. more fiction mm. in the world. So the traveller's tales of going to the other mm. world, you might as well go into the underground world or you yeah. might as well go across the sea. Exactly. Both were equally as unlikely in yeah. a way. Yeah. And as likely. Or as likely. Exactly, yes. yeah. So yeah. it's not that sense of something that's dark and mysterious and, and sinister. Although there's more to it. They, they have magic. Yes. But then, you know, but foreigners have all sorts of stuff. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something, I think, which could, which is worthy of looking at in greater detail. Mm. I really do. It's Doing a special looking at the theme. keep yeah. talking about, and it always interests me. Yeah. And then I suppose the third thing is um, Din Hyanakas and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Yeah. And there's a wonderful amount of Dimpianica's material. There is a huge amount. I mean, you know, some of it is that stuff that's redolent of folk versions such as the, you know, Uwes and Wither, you know, that, that might be a, a local Dinghenicus. 
But there's also, it's unlike things like the, the metrical Dinahankas poems, which are all very sort of specific to one mm-hmm. sort of small area because it's looking at a particular place name. This and related texts such as the Mescalad, they have a sense of the island and telling a story of the island and, and providing a story map of mm-hmm. the island as and a whole. And there's a text at this early date, mm. uh, as you say, comparable to Moitura, which yeah. is very, very local. It's incredibly based. local, yeah. I mean, Moitura is full of places that you could walk to in a day or two, mm-hmm. you know, whereas this is places where you need to make a serious journey in order to get there. Mm. But it still connects them up, you know, so it's it's connecting up particularly the provinces and you're going to put center. your story maps up on the blog this exactly time. We've yeah been a bit we've sort of saved a lot of stuff for the last exactly last, yeah uh, episode well the last part of this yeah and uh, i've been trying to identify now it's not always that easy uh, to identify the places that are mentioned but particularly things like Cúchulainn's story of his journey with the Liamacha and the Dov Shenglen, which we talked about in the very first episode um, but then also um, their journeys as Some of the routes they're Kru- heading to Cruachan, Kru- yeah. And then the way they go back by different routes. Exactly, and, so and then you get the Drumsnad and Henicus and so on. You know, all those little things that I think that for the original audience, um, they were creating a mental map mm. of the island and, you know, giving a sense of connectedness with places that would have been some distance distant. away, yeah, 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 exactly, and that sense of the 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 land in which we live has mm. grown, mm, exactly. Even though the two texts are comparatively similar, exactly, dated, yeah, it's quite interesting. Mm. That. So yeah, there's a strong Dinhyanikasan. Mm. Well, hopefully you'll get your maps up. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to put that list of t- comparisons, comparisons, Dagda and uh, Karoy, which I mm. find interesting, and maybe some of those comparisons between Grain and the Green Knight. Yes and this text because mm. I think they help to clarify it. Yeah. We ought to put links to various texts. Exactly, up. yeah. There will be Mescarullah perhaps. Mesca one, yeah, definitely. Um a link to a, a readable version of Gawain. Um you and know. an unreadable one. <laughs> it's really interesting yeah. to look at the, the, the original language and oh, go, yeah. that is English. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's it. Oh and something else. You were going to dig your um trenches. My test trenches. Test trenches, but we've decided these need to be done in a different way and going to start recording some of those um, pieces in Old Irish, in the original Irish, so that you can hear how they sound, because you, see, you really need to hear yeah, it. I'm very lucky. I hear how it sounds, mm. and it gives me um, a flavour of the poetry. Mm. And I think sometimes it's difficult to really feel the poetry unless you can hear it. Exactly. Yeah. Reading it, I can't read it, but mm. I can listen to it. Yes, yeah. And one more thing, um, when we found this play, oh, yes. which Isolde has a personal connection to. Yes. Of course. Of course. <laughs> My great granduncle Joe Plunkett, with his great friend Tomas McDonough. Sixteen. Yes, Tomas, who was another one of the the nineteen sixteen leaders, they set up the Irish Theatre um, in Hardwick Street in about nineteen. In opposition 15. to the Abbey, which yes. I didn't get on with. Exactly, because <laughs> I didn't get on with Yates. <laughs> well, they didn't like what they called the peasant plays, you know. But yeah, they were interested yeah. in you know the Moscow Arts Theatre and European theatre, so they were setting up their own little theatre and. Uh, Imro Duffy was one of the people that they were involved with, and he wrote this play, which wonderful is, play, yeah, which is the Feast of Brick Crew, a, a comedy, comedy in three acts, in three acts. and it's brilliant. brilliant, yeah. So it's great fun, and what's great about it as well is that it's telling, obviously, an ancient story for a modern audience, 
and it's setting it in the modern political context. Yes, of the polit you know, of yeah. a very interesting time in Ireland. Absolutely, yeah. So it's absolutely fascinating. It's great. And if you yeah. read it, do read the epilogue because yes. it's really funny. Exactly, exactly. It's and great fun. uh, we'll put a link to that up. Yeah. And who knows? We've now decided our own project yeah. to maybe turn it into an audio play, but exactly. not yet. Yes, so watch these spaces. Indeed. For a long time, probably. Yes. <laughs> next time, we're going to take another look at a story we've already touched on in yeah. the Corpse Carrying for Beginners. Yes. Uh, we, want to we want to look at Echtrenet. Era, uh, with, in more detail exactly because it's another crochen and that's you know our local sort of center well we're sorry this has been long well we're not no we're not sorry at all it's been great <laughs> being able to really dive into this text okay then Until well that's time. been fun hasn't it been great i think i like this text thank you for listening to ogilaf nanagas conversations about irish mythology with the story archaeologists chris thompson and isolde carmody for more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.